What's happening, Brew Theology listeners? This is Ryan Miller, and welcome back to another Brew Theology episode where we bring to you Reverend Diana Thompson from the Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple. Diana Thompson talks about the compassionate Buddha. This will be part one of two in this conversation with my friends Dan, Kelly, and Dylan. So I hope you enjoy this show, and if you do, please go to iTunes, rate it, review it, share this. That's how we get more listeners. That's how we spread the love and we share the brew, and more people throughout this nation can start figuring out what it means to dive into pluralistic conversations and engage in interfaith dialogue and hopefully come out a better person at the end of the day, more compassionate, if you will. So we are at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter, along with Brew Theology. Those handles are at Facebook and Instagram. There's also BrewTheology.org, the website, where you can see where you can be a partner, maybe a sponsor, possibly donate, help us continue this podcast and the great work of this amazing alliance that we're forming. Just got another email this week. Winston-Salem, North Carolina is going to be launching a Brew Theology soon. In addition to Jacksonville, Canton, Ohio, Greeley, New Jersey, the metro area here of the Northwest Metro of Denver, and of course, yours truly, Denver, Colorado. So thank you to all my friends in Denver who make this podcast happen. Love you, Dan Rosado. He's on the episode again. Hey, man. Dan's Dan's like a brother. Danny, 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 Danny boy. All right. Enough with Dan. Enough with me and my love for Dan. Man, have a great day. It's fall. It's beautiful. Enjoy the weather. Enjoy the beer this season. Enjoy football, baseball playoffs, NBA tip-offs coming soon. And we will see you on the other side. Peace. All right. Well, welcome everybody to the Brew Theology Podcast. We're here with Reverend Diana Thompson. This is Ryan. We've got Dan, Kelly, and Dylan with us tonight. We're at the Madison household. Diana, good to have you. Thank you for having me. What are we all drinking tonight? I've got the acidulous, sour, slightly sour black ale. Same thing. That was Dan. This is Diana. I've got the bareback blonde ale with raspberries. Highly recommend. This is Dylan, and I'm drinking a uh, Dunkel from Pug Ryan's in Dillon, Colorado. This is Kelly. I have Pump Action Imperial Pumpkin Ale. It's always good, I think, unless you're driving to drink while you listen to this podcast. Yeah? I've always wondered about that. People are like, I'm listening to the Brew Theology podcast. What am I drinking? Because like, when you're listening to a show, like everybody's drinking, but then we don't always drink. Some people in here drink coffee, tea, water. Yeah. So we don't judge. Now, speak, speaking of no judgment, I feel like, in a way, the religion that we're going to be talking about tonight, for the most part, stereotypically, and I could be wrong, is one of the religions where... People are gravitating toward because of, hey, it's like the judge-free zone. Whereas we've done the Christian thing, the Catholics, the Protestants, they all judge. So, Diana, um, you don't judge anyone. You're a perfect human being because you're a Buddhist. We're going to get all the stereotypes out now. Yeah? <laughs> Bodhisattva. <laughs> uh, so tonight we're going to be talking about the compassionate Buddha. But before we dig into um, your specific brand, and everybody has a label, and then how that came to be, which is fascinating. Who are you? Why are you here? Uh, what's your what's been your journey to become a reverend in the Buddhist tradition? Well, uh, okay, so I'm Reverend Diana Thompson. As we established a minister at the Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple, which is a Jodo Shinshu temple. Um, 
Yeah, the journey to become a minister is just as exciting as my journey to Buddhism, which I've been Buddhist my entire life, so no big surprises there. Um, and my uh, my bachelor's degrees in religious studies, so you could go into the ministry or work at 7-Eleven with that degree. So I decided to apply for the seminary, and I got in. So that's how I became a minister. It was not no special calling, no anything like that. It was a whim. So I packed up my car after I graduated and moved to California to do the seminary school there. So. All right, so when you were younger, because you grew up in the Buddhist temple, so like for, for instance, you know, Dan and I, People know our story. We've talked a lot on this, and we grew up in a specific Christian tradition. I don't know if my—well, I won't speak for Dan. I, I wasn't encouraged to look elsewhere. So within within your tradition, was there any kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm actually in a minority within this Judeo-Christian American world? So was there any kind of curiosity outside of that when you were younger? Um, For myself, you mean? Yeah. Uh, well, my grandparents, my mom's parents uh, were— High Episcopalian. They went to St. Michael's off of university there. So I had exposure um, to other traditions, but I don't know, kind of growing up in the Buddhist temple, I don't know, I assume it's the same way for a lot of religious traditions. You just, it's kind of where you go. It's not necessarily a religious thing for you when you're a kid. and after I graduated, I was in places where there were no Jodo Shinshu temples, but I wasn't really interested, I guess, in exploring anything beyond that. Um, but like I said, I have my bachelor's is in religious studies, so I've definitely been able to academically look into a lot of the other religious traditions. But I guess I've kind of stuck with this. I'm a creature of habit, I guess. I don't know. I, I think in a way we all are. So, no, that's all That's all good. I. So I would, I'm speaking for myself now. I, I don't have much of a knowledge of Buddhism outside of having a couple of Buddhist friends, reading a few Buddhist books, and then back in college in my undergrad, studying Buddhism, Hinduism, Eastern religions, and then comparative religious studies. Because when I went to seminary, we did not touch any, anything in, outside of the Jewish faith and then the Christian faith. And then so pretty much just being alive in the Western world. So it's... Um, I'm, well, our listeners, I don't know where they are either. I don't know where you guys around the circle are. I know Dan's done a lot more studying than I have. However, bringing it back, um, when we say Christianity, people laugh like, oh, what what kind? When we say Buddhism, we, we should laugh too because there's Western Buddhism. And within that, you have, say that again, the <laughs> show. <laughs> Jodo jo- Shinshu. Jodo Shinshu. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can you give us the history of how that tradition came to be? Oh, how it came to be. Uh, So it comes out of like mid-11th century Japan. So it started in Kyoto. Um, It was kind of cropped up at a time in Japan where people were trying to get away from the Buddhist establishment. So Buddhism was pretty well entrenched in Japan at the time. Um, the founder of our tradition spent 20 years in a monastery doing monk things, but um, was kind of disenchanted with it, A, because he wasn't getting any closer to 
this enlightenment stage and B, because Buddhism was so entrenched, um, it had kind of become like a, almost a pay for play operation kind of deal. So if you wanted teachings or anything special, you had to pay a guy to come off the mountain and come do that for you. So uh, there were a lot of movements at the time in Japan that were cropping up that were focusing on uh, lay people and how people practice in the midst of actual life rather than um, monastic life, which required you to leave everything behind. So yeah, so that's kind of where it came from. And then it came to Hawaii and the mainland United States at the end of the 1800s with the first wave of the Japanese immigrants. So our temples here in Colorado. So I have the Denver temple that I oversee, but I've also got uh, four other temples and three small groups that used to have temples, but they've gotten so small, they just meet in each other's homes. And that's throughout the entire state of Colorado that I oversee. And they've we've all been here for about 100 years now. We celebrated our centennial last year. So... That's that's how we came to be here, I guess. And you had said at the pub last week that within your tradition, prayers and meditation, while important, there's not an emphasis there. Right. So, yeah. So because it did come out of groups of traditions that were trying to get away from the establishment for years, actually right up close to the time that the Buddhism started getting more popular in Europe and in the United States. Things like meditation and heavy textual study, all those things, solely the purview of the monks. That's what you did because you were focusing on enlightenment. So for most of the Buddhist world, meditation for lay people is not a, not a thing uh, until very, very recently. And so, but again, because our tradition came out of these traditions that wanted to get away from those things anyway, and also when bringing it to groups of people who work on farms for 18 hours a day and do things like that, you don't have time. You don't have time because meditation is solely for the purpose of attaining enlightenment. And if that's what you're doing, you can't focus 100% of your energy on it that way. So um, some of our ministers in the last maybe 20 years or so have started getting trained to lead meditation, but because it's historically for the last 750 years has not been part of our tradition, the ministers aren't trained in it. So... I wouldn't know how to lead it or anything. You won't get it at my temple, but there are a few of our temples that the ministers know how to lead it because that's what the people expect when they come in. So, Okay, so speaking sort of of uh, what happens at the temples, what is a – could you like walk us through a little bit of like what a service is like? What kind of goes into that? Does it happen – on Sundays, is there like a specific day of the week or month or, or you know, how how does the service work, basically? All right. Uh, so many of our temples in the United States and in Hawaii, we still do our services primarily on Sunday mornings. That's a product of everybody was immigrant farmers when they came over, and that's the day everybody had to worship. So 
And because our temples are, we still have a lot of families that go Sunday mornings, just they work. So, but there's no specific day that Buddhism has that we should have service. The main temple in Kyoto has them every day, twice a day, for instance. Um, and yeah, the smaller temples outside of Denver, I go visit each one of them just once a month. So, and then we have a couple of them that meet on Saturdays too. So, and during the services, we start with chanting, and that usually comes from either the writings of the founder of the tradition or from uh, the three small texts that we use in our specific tradition. And after the chanting, we do a reading. Uh, usually it's the three treasures or the triple refuge. So we take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, which are the teachings, and Sangha, which is the community. And then after that, uh, we do have a lot of little songs. We call them gathas or poems, most of them written either in Hawaii or in the United States. And they do sound to put it in other people's words, super churchy when you come in. So a lot of that is translation. You know, we have a lot of uh, Lord Buddha, which is an accurate translation, but it sounds weird to Western ears, people who are not familiar with it. Um, and then one of the ministers, there are two of us at the temple I serve, will do a Dharma talk or a sermon. And for us, because we have a lot of kids, we do a service more directed at the kids, so the talk's a little shorter. Um, I read everything from Arnold Lobel to Dr. Seuss, whatever, and use those as little teaching tools for the kids. And then they go to their Sunday schools, and um, the adult service runs pretty much the same way, just longer talk. And So as it relates to the service, and um, when we were at the pub last week, you talked about just the basic principles of Buddhism and it's the, the four noble, noble truths, which were, you know, life is suffering. A suffering can be caused by, ang by greed, anger, and delusion. Complete freedom from suffering can be achieved and the, um, through the eightfold noble paths. Uh, and so these teachings, are they, and this is also my understanding of other Buddhist texts, is it? Is it discussing these eight noble paths? Uh, no. The <laughs> Jodo Shinshu, we've never uh, actually, just since we've been overseas outside of Japan, have we uh, had things like the Eightfold Noble Path in our service books. Uh, the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths themselves, the word noble is very specifically used because it was taught by the Buddha to some people that he used to practice with, he knew they were spiritually noble. So the Eightfold Noble Path is more directed at people who are on the specific path to enlightenment. Um, because the Eightfold Path and that kind of thing did end up in our service book through a wide variety of channels, uh, we... Assure people it's more of a set of suggestions. So the stuff on the path is like practice uh, right speech or right action or right livelihood. If you can maybe come close to getting around to one of those once in a while, then 
doing okay. So, um, yeah, even though the Four Noble Truths is going to be brought up in every single intro to Buddhism, anything, anywhere, it's not necessarily something that's directed at lay people. It's directed more at monastics in general, just because they're they're on a bit of a higher path than the rest of us. More like guidelines than actual rules. Exactly. <laughs> I, I couldn't resist. I could not resist. I'm so sorry. I knew you had something snarky to say because I could see your face. You were just like... <laughs> This is Dan, who last week said that I looked like I had an uh, an air of wiseness to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> you do look very wisdomous. <laughs> so, what what would, be, what would be the Pirates of the Caribbean code in your tradition? I mean, with the lay people, we, we know that the higher ups study a certain way. Mm-hmm. But what do you you because you said Doctor Seuss? Mm-hmm. I mean, and not I don't want to knock Doctor Seuss. That's for the kids. He's a, he's uh, a solid yeah. He's great. Oh, I've read Doctor yeah. Seuss books to the grown ups too. So <laughs> <laughs> they have to yeah. take what they get when they get. But is, there, is there any kind of confirmation? Any kind of catechism? No. Nah. But I guess what's the the more general way of saying it? How does one become a part of the community and feel like you're within that tradition? Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, actually, there's nothing. Nothing in particular. Uh, there are Buddhist traditions that do have refuge ceremonies. So it would be a big thing where you take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha in front of the whole group um, and kind of affirm yourself as a Buddhist. But for the most part, you can pretty much just say that you are. And for our temples, we'll give you a membership application and... <laughs> You can hand us some dough, I guess, if you want to be an official member, but it's certainly not required. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Although I heard we're way lowballing it, so we might have to rethink what we're doing. The tithe is a nice thing, 10%. I mean, if you're, we talked to LDS a while back. 10% 10% of it goes straight in. Yeah. Is that gross or net? Heard. Gross for LDS. Dude. That's what Megan said in the other podcast. That's that's intense. So what's the... Because I my understanding of Buddhism and at most of the Buddhist um, research and, and teaching that I've been accustomed to is the Zen tradition. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me wonder, like the way you talk about the, the Eightfold Path and the Noble Truths as being more for the monastics... I guess what of Buddhism in terms of uh, like what Christians would call piety, like your lived life, how much of that gets translated and how does it get translated to the everyday life of a Jodo Shinshu? Is that correct? <laughs> Jodo Shinshu uh, member or, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> let's see. So as Ryan mentioned, we're not particularly judgy so that's the other thing about things like the eightfold path there's no you absolutely must do blah 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 or absolutely shouldn't do blah 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 um the understanding for us uh, is that we are small unenlightened beings and 
sort of the ultimate goal, and that's in enormous quotation marks, would be for us to fully understand that within ourselves, to understand that we don't have all the answers, that no matter how much we learn or do or whatever, we're not going to be perfect human beings. And so once we get to that point, we start to relax ourselves in sort of our heart and minds, and then we can approach everybody else in the same way with a bit more understanding, a bit more tolerance, hopefully. But even if we don't, understanding that, you know, that's some stuff for us personally to kind of work out. So uh, for the kids, uh, we do, you know, we do give kid lessons, sharing and, you know, trying to get along with everybody. Uh, But we also do emphasize that, you know, mistakes are okay. They are perfectly fine. And I uh, didn't realize that this is something I had imparted, but we had a high school senior last year uh, who mentioned that one of the things that she had learned at the temple was that uh, we all make mistakes, but that we ourselves are not mistakes. So that's kind of kind of what we try to push forward, that, you know, there are lots of things that happen, lots of things we do, and we're all just trying to muddle through it the best we can. So because we don't have a set of you have to do this in order to attain this, it's a lot of it is on a case-by-case basis, I guess, kind of thing. So So generally, it seems like it's about relating to yourself and to others in a way that you you show them i keep wanting to use christian language like but grace okay. mm-hmm. like that that you do it in a way that is is kind of open to the full experience human experience you know mistakes and, and joy and, and everything that comes with it mm-hmm. but also like the the general concepts of like interdependence mm-hmm. and a non-attachment kind of apply Mm-hmm. Maybe not in an academic way, but in a very relational, down-to-earth way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That still applies, and that's part of the life of of a Jodo Shinshu Buddhist. Right. Are right. those part yeah. of the teachings and the um, services? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the two teachings that run through all Buddhist traditions are interdependence and impermanence. And then we all just kind of veer off from there. So, you know, I found it interesting, Dan, that you use, you, I labeled it a Christian term, grace, like interacting with each other with grace, which is a good term. But I think the Buddhist uh, equivalent would be compassion. Is that so? I couldn't think of the word. I'm so, so speaking of compassion, <laughs> this is titled the compassionate Buddha. The two, the two definitions of compassion. Can you go over the, I don't know how to pronounce them and then how they're different. I'm not going to try. Yeah, karuna and maha karuna, and it's just uh, small compassion and big compassion, basically. The idea that um, human beings have small compassion. We can be totally compassionate, but it always has its limits. Uh, The maha karuna comes up with the Mahayana tradition because their main focus is on the bodhisattva, who is someone who will not transcend to that full space of perfect enlightenment until all beings are enlightened. And so... And that's by choice. Yes. Yes, that's a conscious choice. I guess one of the 
best examples would be the Dalai Lama. So um, they say that he has chosen to continue to reincarnate every time so that he can continue to teach and to hopefully bring people to enlightenment. But uh, as with that example, it takes eons of time. It takes a long time. It also requires you to be absolutely fearless and not worry about what other people are thinking, um, not worry even about the own, uh, the prejudices that we've got in our own heads. Um, yeah, to be super blunt about it, I mean, it would require you to be walking down the street and if you saw Adolf Hitler on the street to go up and be like, come on, Hitler. Let's, it's going to be okay. Let's have a little chat here and to approach him with no prejudices, no preconceived anything, and just get down to trying to make him a more compassionate, kind person, which for all of us, because we have small compassion, that's like, you can't even fathom that. I, there are plenty of people I cannot fathom being that kind to or being that, you know, being able to approach in that way because of whatever fear or preconceptions or anything that, that I have of them. So, yeah, so that's kind of the difference, that trying to do that, it's going to take a lot of work, and most people are not capable of that kind of compassion because of all the things that we encounter and everything that we've learned. It's So are all bodhisattvas um, reincarnated, or are, they, or are they in physical form? Are there any that are incarnate? Um, let's see. Actually, the Dalai Lama is the only one that I know of who is specifically spoken of as sort of a living example of a bodhisattva. Yeah, yeah. Most of the other bodhisattvas are more kind of ephemeral beings. So, But are they still bodhisattvas? They're, they're not. So my question mm-hmm. is, okay, so in Buddhism, because in Christianity, when you die, when you die, you, when we die in Christianity, we transcend into heaven. And then, you know, some people believe in angels or these other forms. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to map, you know, bodhisattvas could be incarnate, could be the equivalent of saints, mm-hmm. could be the equivalent of, you know, angels. Yeah, yeah. So they go by, we call it skillful means in Buddhism. The historical Buddha talked about it, and that was that he taught people according to who they were. So, for instance, with the Four Noble Truths, taught those because he knew those folks to be spiritually noble. But the way that he taught to different groups was different. So, yeah, if he had walked into a town hollering about suffering, uh, he might have been treated like a guy with a scruffy beard and a sandwich board. Like, that guy is absolutely out of his head. So, um yeah, so the bodhisattvas, that's kind of the way that they operate consistently. So probably the best known one would be the bodhisattva of great compassion, um, often portrayed as male in uh, India and sometimes in Tibetan traditions because uh, compassion was considered to be a male trait there. In China, you will see... Uh, they're androgynous versions, but the most common one is Kuan Yin. She's the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of Compassion, and she takes on many different roles. So sometimes it's a higher level monastic you try to focus on and become that Bodhisattva. But for most lay people, she was a devotional figure and is a devotional figure. So 
um, yeah, the sort of changeable nature of them is part of that compassion too, is that they can manifest whatever is needed at the time. Okay. So that leads to another question. Yes. So I have a bodhisattva that's incarnate, um, and is being a, you know, a saint or a counselor in my Western terms. But then at one point, uh, oh, so none of them become a Buddha until everyone is free of suffering. Mm-hmm. Because, but there's also this concept. I, my understanding is that people become, people achieve nirvana and become Buddha mm-hmm. without being a bodhisattva, not going the bodhisattva path. Right. Okay. Right. And each set of so. Before becoming bodhisattvas, uh, there's a set of vows that they make, and each one is actually specific to that being or that bodhisattva. So the path is there are some similarities, but uh, the vows that they make are kind of personal to themselves. So once they accomplish them, then then they transcend. So when one actually transcends and becomes a Buddha, would that be similar to the Western concept of becoming one with God? Kind of. Uh, it's various languages used. Yeah, returning right. to suchness, um, returning to nothingness, things like okay. that. So yeah, it would be would be considered, I guess, similar ish. Maybe. Yeah. Not what the- I think what tripped me up originally, and what I think trips up a lot of Western Christian people, because we have this big concept of God, mm-hmm. and then we have, well, there was Buddha. Well, okay, well, Buddha's a god. Well, no, Buddha's not a god. Mm-hmm. I mean, and everybody can become a Buddha, and then all of a sudden it's like, what? There's all these gods, or I mean, I can mm-hmm. see where it becomes. And I think it's part language and part paradigm that we we bring our mappings to it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was just um, trying to differentiate differentiate that a little bit boy a lot of those things don't really matter in buddhism if you're sitting around trying to quantify all of these bizarre metaphysical ideas you're so far off the path it's not even funny so (laughs) trying to decide whether you know is this an actual thing do you become an actual buddha in your little pure land um, because there are plenty of texts that talk about the innumerable Buddhas and their innumerable right. Buddha lands. Right. They might exist, they might not, but those are things that really don't matter to Buddhists. It's just, um, again, part of how do we get people to understand something like nirvana, which is a complete blinking out, which is also something that's so ineffable you can't put it into language, even though we have like a grillion pages trying to put it into language. So, yeah. So, you know, we're small and we need descriptions of things. We need, you know, what does it look like? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? And without that, it's very difficult to sort of get your mind to that place. So, um, so I've got two thoughts on uh, on Bodhisattva's First off, you know, what traditions really kind of celebrate them? Or I don't know if celebrate is the right mm-hmm. word, but think about them. And mm-hmm. because you went over this a little bit the other night and it didn't seem to be something that was like across every tradition necessarily, mm-hmm. or they all shared the same ideals. And second off, are they, were they all historical figures at people incarnate at some point, or are they, you know, some of them just truly meant to just be ideas that were kind of given form by the word bodhisattva and, and 
you know, maybe made into a character of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Bodhisattvas come out of Mahayana tradition. So the two sort of big main branches, I guess, of Buddhism would be the Theravada, which is the tradition of the elders. And they tend to focus more on the idea of um, the arhat or somebody who personally goes for enlightenment for themselves. And they definitely tend to veer away from a lot of the metaphysical stuff. However, they also have a lot of the Jataka tales, which are the tales of the Buddha's previous births. So the idea that he and all the other Buddhas have been in existence from time immemorial uh, is something that kind of you will find in most Buddhist traditions. And the Bodhisattvas are huge in most Buddhist traditions because most Buddhists are lay people. So rather than, again, trying to do all these difficult meditations or practices or teachings, um, they, yeah, the lay people are very devotional, very, so it's for them having things like the bodhisattvas who are a bit closer to them is, but as with all religious traditions and within the religious studies uh, field in general, it's just recently that they're starting to actually take into account that there are people who are involved in these religious traditions doing religious things on the ground rather than just doing textual study and trying to make it all very philosophical and things like that. So. Buddhism's pretty far behind on that, but yeah, the bodhisattvas, as far as we know, have been big for a very long time and in most traditions. And the stories of them in the Buddhist texts, in the sutras, all the Buddhas have roughly the same story, kind of miraculous uh, birth stories and... They have to go through a period of uh, like confusion and then they have to go out into the wilderness and do the whole thing. So the stories are all pretty similar and all of them start with things like a super real long time ago, this guy did this thing. So there's no, again, other than the Dalai Lama, they're... Very few stories that have this was an actual guy. So um, the little fat Buddha from China, uh, Hotai, he's the Buddha of the future, the Buddha Maitreya. He does have some stories that uh, kind of try to put him in a specific time and place as a monk who did live and was going around teaching through songs and through giving things away and doing all of that, uh, but then revealed himself to be the Buddha Maitreya and was just trying to get people to get all psyched for the coming of the next Buddha. So, yeah. Is is the purpose at least Hmm. for the individual and even for the Sangha, the community is the Bodhisattva seen as kind of an ideal or is it, or is it more just a personification of, cause I, I can't remember if it was a Bodhisattva or a, or a Buddha of healing, for example, or something like that, that you, you had talked about in your talk. Um, and, you know, when you approach 
whether it's a Bodhisattva or a Buddha, I can't remember, um, when he approached this being with uh, kind of prayerfully, is the idea to receive something or is it to become like them? Depends on who's doing the approaching. So for, again, for mostly people, it would be more a petitionary kind of thing. Um, Maybe you're asking for some kind of good virtue within yourself or maybe you're asking for some good luck gambling and it could be it could be any kind of thing there uh the purpose for a lot of monastic communities uh particularly the tantric areas of buddhist practice the idea is to visualize oneself as that buddha or bodhisattva to try to become that but yeah, again, for, for most lay Buddhists, that's not something that they're trying to do. The reason I ask is insofar as we can make the comparison between like bodhisattvas and saints, for example, I I kind of feel like even among Christian like Christians, your why you do that or why you pray to saints or, or contemplate the saints might differ, right? You You might be asking for something from them. Or you might want to become someone like St. Francis. Yeah, so in, you know, in our tradition, within, well, Protestants wouldn't say this, but Catholics would say you know, veneration and adoration are two different things. Protestants have slowly tried to figure that out once they have Catholic friends who can break that down. But there is, but there is no adoration um, within your tradition. Veneration's good, well, but you, you can get might, stuck. You might want to ask before well, you oh, assume. Am I assuming that? Is there, is there, are there any people who are... We, I guess, yeah, because we all kind of want the God. It's like we want our president to be our God. We want our leader to be well, not 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 our current president. But Speak Lord, for yourself, Ryan. Lord. <laughs> oh man! But you know, hey, according to your tradition, though, speaking of speaking of forty-five, and you see him on the road, you know, you know, we'll, we'll forget about forty-five. But. But you're going to have compassion for him because let's get off that rabbit trail. We, could, we could go back to that one in a second. Or a Buddha, I could do so that. So I'm assuming, <laughs> yes, that there is no adoration. But some people could get caught up in the veneration that it slowly becomes adoration. Like we would see in maybe some, not just Catholics, but Protestants who put their leaders on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We've had... Uh, Several problems within several traditions uh, in regards to like guru worship. So even though that sort of thing is supposed to be suspect in Buddhist traditions, I mean, you're there are a couple in every bunch, right? The guys who tell everybody that they are an incarnation of some Buddha or some Bodhisattva or that they themselves hold the secret teachings of this, that, or the other. And so, yeah, there is, there is potential for that to have it turn into sort of guru worship. And again, there's been plenty of lawsuits here in the United States regarding those kinds of behaviors. And, um, yeah, looking at Sri Lanka, Thailand, and Burma at this point, for instance, same kind of thing. Their Buddhism uh, is more nationalism than it is actual Buddhist religious tradition, but they've managed to parlay that into... We can't relate in America. Yeah. I'm sorry. Can you break I, that down? I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll try to think of a way to put that better later, but... <laughs> <laughs> too soon <laughs> uh. 
Hey, it's, it's relevant. Moon's still fresh. I have a silly question. Hooray! Do you have any holidays that you celebrate? Yes. Uh, the one that is common across most Buddhist traditions would be Vesak, uh, which is on April 8th, the birth date of the historical Buddha. So most, many, many Buddhist traditions, they observe it as all of the major landmark events in the Buddha's life. So not only his birth, but his uh, enlightenment and his uh, death, which is the point of his final nirvana. Uh, in my tradition and in some other East Asian Buddhist traditions, we kind of break those up a little bit. So we have the the major one on April 8th, which is the birth date, but then... Um, Bodhi Day, which is the Day of Enlightenment, for example, is coming up in December, on December 8th. Um, and a lot of Buddhist traditions will also observe, like, the memorial dates of their founders, specifically. So, And what do those celebrations look like? Hopefully food. Uh, always food. <laughs> always food. Best part of being a minister, I'm not going to lie. The food is amazing all the time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we do big... Special services at the temple kind of relate the story of whatever particular holiday we're observing. And, yeah, there's lots of potluck. And within our temples here in the U.S. and in Hawaii, and they're different organizations just because it came over when Hawaii wasn't a state officially yet. But uh, we tend to, especially if we have a lot of kids at the temple, it will not only be the major service on the Buddha's birthday, but like the kids will all get together and put on little skits and things like that. So I have one more. So you're a, a white woman um, minister at a Japanese <laughs> Buddhist <observant>. temple. <laughs> What's the demographic of your congregation? Uh, let's see. These days it's pretty diverse. When I started going, and that would be about 30 years ago, we were, I think we were the only non-Japanese American family at the temple. Uh, and it depends on the temple. So a lot of our big city temples are getting more diverse. Kind of depends on the area, too. So the neighborhood that my temple is in currently, uh, it used to be doo-doo. Really awful, really run down, really kind of skid row area. But we've gotten... Uh, lot of development in the last couple of years so we're more visible people actually walk by the temple and things like that so the big city temples the demographics are pretty diverse but uh the temples that i serve outside of denver all old farming communities so they're all japanese american roughly median age like 85 or so so yeah 